The word of the Lord from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I've started doing something new during the divine service. Now, it's not a big deal when most people do something a little different in church, but But when a pastor does something new, it's not just an expression of personal piety. It leaves people wondering why he's doing it and if they should be doing it too or if it's just a pastor thing. And all this means that the pastor had better explain why he does what he does. I've been remiss in doing so. So on this Christmas morning, I'm coming clean. So here it is. As we say the Nicene Creed, I bow at the part when we arrive at and was made man. And I straighten up again when we get to the part where it says, the third day he rose again from the dead. Technically speaking, that part of the creed is called the humiliation of Jesus. It's not humiliation as in degradation, Despite the shame of the crucifixion that it includes, technically, 
The humiliation of Jesus means the time of his work for our redemption, that Jesus humbles himself and conceals his divinity in order to save us from our sin. Now, bowing during the creed in recognition of the humiliation, it's nothing new, but it might seem counterintuitive. After all, in Scripture, people normally bow before the Lord when he's just done some sort of miraculous wonder that makes them marvel. And we know that on the last day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he returns in glory. In other words, people bow before Jesus when he's obviously, gloriously God. The incarnation is not about that kind of glory, but rather it's about nearness. It's about him dwelling among us. In fact, one of the great joys of Jesus' incarnation and humiliation is that he's like you and me. He starts out as a baby. He's approachable. He's identifiable. He's flesh and blood. He knows all of our trials and temptations. Of course, sinners being sinners, people tend to take the humanity of Jesus and twist it up so that Jesus becomes the best buddy who is around to be your emotional support dog and make you feel better about the sins you don't want to stop doing. They tend to forget that while Jesus was tempted in every way, he was without sin. They tend to downplay that while he is fully man, he remains holy God who will judge the sinner on the last day. So, if it's not about evident glory, why would anyone, or some preacher at least, bow when we confess the humiliation of Jesus? The reason is gratitude unspeakable, insufficient thanks that the Son of God humbled himself to be our Savior. In one of his many writings, Martin Luther related a short fable that was floating around the Middle Ages when he was alive. In the fable, it's time for the creed in church, and everybody bows when they reach the part where Jesus is made man. Everybody except for one guy who remains standing upright. And at this point in the fable, the devil appears beside him, and you would think that Satan would praise the man for his disrespect of the Lord. But instead, Satan whacks him upside the head and says, What's wrong with you? If Jesus had become an angel to save fallen angels like me, I would certainly bow. But he became man to save fallen men like you. Now, of course, again, it's a fable. The devil does not go around wishing he could be saved because he's pure evil. Satan would never praise Jesus for becoming man, unless God made him do it just to show who has conquered who. That'd be fun. But the fable does make a point. If Jesus so honors you and me that he becomes flesh like us, that ought to leave us awed and grateful, especially since he does so for us and for our salvation. 
Think it through with the help of our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. The feet of God. We call such talk an anthropomorphism, which is a fancy word for a metaphor that makes God sound like a human being. See, messengers need feet to travel all over the place. So those beautiful feet are a metaphor that God gets his message of salvation out to all people all over the place as if he were running around. Likewise, in the same chapter, he bears his holy arm before the nations, which is a nice metaphorical way of saying that God is going to show some muscle, exercise his power, and get things done. Metaphors like that are necessary in the Bible because we cannot comprehend God, so he does us the kindness of making himself sound like us. So if Isaiah 52 was always and ever only a metaphor, that would still be a great blessing. But as of Christmas, it's not just metaphor anymore. As of that birth in Bethlehem, see, God does have feet. He has beautiful feet with the tiniest beautiful toes. They're attached to his legs. It's still that funny bent position from being cramped up in Mary's womb for so long. And there, God has arms too. They're attached to hands about the size of my thumbs and with tiny, beautiful fingers that might be smacking him in the face until the omniscient, all-knowing son figures out that those fingers belong to him. The second person of the Holy Trinity is an infant in a manger. He is the most vulnerable of human beings laid in one of the worst cradles ever. Why? To dwell among us, full of grace and truth, for us and for our salvation. Make no mistake. Christmas doesn't mean that Jesus is out on a joyride. It's not like all those times when you and I think, wouldn't it be cool to be a platypus for the day? He's not doing this just to see what it's like. He has become flesh because it's necessary to save you. It is necessary to save you because the wages of sin is death, and you've got to pay the debt with your own flesh and blood unless somebody sinless steps in and pays the price of redemption with his flesh and blood. That's Jesus, fully human to step in for you, fully God to step in for all. He's going to bear his arm before all the nations so that his hands, his flesh and blood hands, can be nailed to a cross. And his legs are going to be in a funny bent position again when his beautiful feet are impaled with another spike. For me personally, the more I ponder this, the more it makes sense for me to bow at the humiliation in the creed. Your mileage may vary. You're totally free to bow or not to bow. Your call. I'm not trying to start something, really. But the more years I have to reflect and ponder the more astonishing is that Jesus humbles himself and becomes flesh to redeem the world, 
that in his humility, he allows himself to be so humiliated and mistreated by sinners in order to save them, in order to save you. Every knee will bow when all see Jesus in glory on the last day. But if you read John 1 carefully, you see that before Jesus is gloriously risen from the dead, he is glorious in his humility, in his service, in his sacrifice, in his death. In the Gospel of John, which is about us seeing the Word made flesh in his glory, he is most glorious on the cross. Now, if you ask me, that forgiveness of sins is enough of a Christmas gift. But where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. But wait, there's more. Because the Lord who dwells among his people loves to give gifts. See, in addition, the incarnation of Jesus means that there is no place you can be that Jesus hasn't been. Before you spent nine months in the womb, Jesus spent nine months in the womb. Dwelling there, he sanctified the womb. In other words, when we pray for pregnant women, when we are aware of troubles and complications, when we must even mourn a miscarriage or a stillbirth, we know that the child in the womb is not beyond God's reach or God's mercy because God himself has been in the womb. If you are born and outside the womb, you are born into the same world into which Jesus was born. The air that he breathed is the air that you still breathe today as it makes its way around the closed ecosystem of this creation. And you can travel overseas and walk where he walked if you like. But more than that, he knows all the temptations, all the pains, and all the joys that you know. Nothing you experience is foreign to him. This, by the way, is the brilliance of one of those lesser-sung Christmas hymns once in Royal David City, which is starting to make its way into my top ten. I'm thinking of verse 3, which says, For he is our childhood's pattern. Day by day like us he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feels for all our sadness and he shares in all our gladness. As the book of Hebrews says, you could not have a more sympathetic high priest than Jesus who dwelt among us on the way to the cross. But the emphasis ought not be on sympathetic. It should be on high priest. He has made the sacrifice for sin by being the sacrifice for sin. And not just sin, but all of its curse and all of its consequences. He bore our sins and infirmities to the cross, including everything from the chronic disease to your kids' chicken pox. He has borne it all and he has died with it all, taking it to the grave. Which means that at the resurrection, when you're past the grave, there will be only gladness forever 
because all sadness is taken away. This too is all true because he became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of the grave, Jesus has been there too. And so in our funeral rite, we rejoice that Jesus has sanctified the grave. When we lay to rest one who has died in the faith, we know that God remembers them. They too are not outside of his care. We know that in Christ they are just asleep, and the Lord will awaken them to new life, to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. All this is true because he became flesh. Again, there is no place you can be that Jesus hasn't been. Your sins don't surprise him because, while he didn't commit them, he bore them, he knows them, he suffered for them. Now, risen again, he still dwells among you in his means of grace. He's made you his own in baptism, and his promise, I am with you always, that means even more when you remember that before he accompanied you, he's already walked in your shoes to the grave and back. The word made flesh remains present in that word of absolution. So you live each day knowing that God isn't out to get you because he doesn't hold your sins against you. And the word made flesh was kept his human nature, his present at the altar, giving you his body and blood, once swaddled, once crucified, now risen from the dead, and for the forgiveness of sins. Where the grave still separates you from your glorious Savior, Jesus keeps visiting humbly in bread and wine to keep you his until you're on the other side. Since there is no place you can be that Jesus hasn't been, by his grace, you will be where he is forever. Of all Christmas presents, give thanks for his presence, both now and forevermore. A blessed Christmas to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.